0: Well, before we begin our our text, I want to give you just a a little background of what we're doing here with this letter written by John. John was an apostle. In Scripture records, he was the apostle that Jesus loved. In Da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper, he was positioned next to Christ. In fact, he was leaning on Jesus' shoulder in that picture. This is the apostle that was at Christ's crucifixion. Jesus told him to take care of his mother, Mary. And tradition has it that John was the youngest of the original disciples, most likely a teenager, and perhaps as young as 13 years old. After the crucifixion, he stayed in Judea for another 12 years, where he and the early church were regularly and continually persecuted by Hera Agrippa I. This persecution finally led to his move to Ephesus. And perhaps he went to Ephesus for several reasons. One, it was outside of Herod's control. Herod did not have jurisdiction over Ephesus. And two, that probably the community was there. It was already a Messianic community. And that the church there was led by Apollos, Priscilla, and Aquila. And we read about those in the books of Acts. So let's flash forward a little bit. Now, 60 years later, we find this 70-year-old John in Ephesus and he's writing the gospel that bears his name in these three letters. As we continue our look at this first letter, I think it's interesting to note that it was probably carried by missionaries, and it was read aloud to the different churches around Ephesus. And this letter was written to those who were already believers. It seems that the audience was largely Gentile rather than Jewish, since it contains very few Old Testament quotations. And it has few distinctively Jewish forms of expression. John wrote this letter to increase the mutual joy among the believers. And he wrote the letter to provide believers with test, Tests which would assure them of their salvation. It says that these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So as we read and as we study these words, may we, also, may we also be assured of our salvation. John wrote this letter also because he was most concerned about some false teachers that had been influencing these churches that were under his control, under his care. These false teachers were considered antichrist. It says that children, in the last hour, just as you heard that the antichrist is coming, Even now, many antichrists have appeared. And from this, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. You know, again, I'm talking about this 70-year-old grandfather. And I think when I'm reading this, I kind of think of an older gentleman on a telephone. And he's talking, and he's repeating himself. And he's telling us, what he was going to say, and then he tells us how he said it in a just a little bit different way. So listen to that as, as we read it, uh, that he is repeating himself a bit, but he's driving home the point, and he's doing it in such a lovely way. These antichrists had once been church leaders, John tells us, and whose teachings had become a heterodox. They were saying some outlandish uh, teachings that weren't in scripture, not what had been tokened. It appears that these teachers taught that Jesus came to earth as a spirit and without a real body of flesh, and that his death on the cross was not a true atonement for sins. Also, according to early Christian tradition, John might have been rebuking a prognostic named Certhius, who also denied the true humanity of Christ. So again, if you would, envision with me this 70-year-old grandfather. He'd been following Jesus for over 50 years. Not just following, but he had known Jesus for over 50 years. A vision. What do you think this gentleman looks like? Now, how do you think he's, he's acting? You know, for me, I see this older gentleman, maybe even with a, a tear in his eye as he's writing or perhaps even dictating today's uh, text, which begins, Now, little children. Abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who also practices righteousness is born of him. John is writing these words to encourage these churches. And you might think there was probably a multitude of ways or or tones this older John might have, have used. But if you think about it, if you think for a moment, John knew Jesus. You know, John had walked with Jesus. So by his knowledge and his walking and Jesus abiding in him, there's really only just one way. One way to encourage these people that were under his care. And that, of course, was through love. Remember, Jesus said how people would know that you are my disciples. He said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if if you have love for one another. So we see John addressing the church with this tender phrase, now little children. He goes on to say that we are to abide in Jesus, that we are to stay united in our hearts with Jesus. Christ said it this way, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. John continues with encouraging words by reminding us that when Jesus returns, we should be confident. We should be confident if we are united with Christ. We should not be ashamed. We should not be fearful when Jesus returns. You know, when I I read this, my thoughts immediately went to Genesis. It went straight to the story of Adam and Eve. Remember that story? They were ashamed to be seen by God because they had what? They'd sinned. They knew they had done wrong, and they were ashamed of their actions. One day, one day you and I will stand before God. And will you be ashamed? Will you be filled with guilt? Or will you be confident? Confident because you're filled with his righteousness. You know, Paul told us that Christ took our sins and gave us his righteousness. He made him who knew no sins to be sin on our behalf. Then it says, so that we might become his righteousness of God in him. The next section begins with, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. This loving grandfather continues his words of encouragement by reminding us to think about, think about how much God, our our heavenly father, how much he loves us. God loves us so much that he lets us be called his children. Think about that. His child. The creator of the universe, the creator of everything said, you are my child. John incur- continues this encouragement with words of, of hope. John says, We are already God's children, though what we will be hasn't been seen. But we will know when Christ returns, we will be like him, and we will see him as he truly is. Huh? I, I had to think about that. I think a simple translation for us, though, is that we're going to be like Jesus when he returns. We are going to be like Jesus when he returns. What a marvelous thought. What hope. Paul said it this way. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoptions as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him so that many so that may also glorify with him these two great men of faith both tell us that God has adopted us we are heirs with Christ we're heirs with Christ to an everlasting home with the great I am we we are God's child This knowledge should give us confidence. This knowledge should give us hope. And it should give us great joy. Now this loving grandfather passes on some other words of encouragement in the next passages. He says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. In these words, I think we can see that this grandfather has mellowed in his older years. He's the last of the 12 disciples, and he's no longer one of those sons of thunder. Listen to the kindness, his loving way he addresses the church, the little children. As he points out that everyone who sins breaks God's law, because sin is the same thing as breaking God's law. Someone, someone once told me that all sin can be traced back to breaking the first commandment. You should have no other gods before me. So I think when we sin, we're putting ourselves or we're putting somebody or we're putting something else in front of God. So John tells us that we know Christ came to take away our sins. Jesus is not sinful. And when we abide or when we stay united in him, well, we will not keep on sinning. John also tells us if we do not keep on habitually sinning, then, or excuse me, if we do keep on habitually sinning, then we don't really know Christ, and he is not in our hearts. No one who abides in him sins, and no one who sins has seen him or knows him. You know, this plain, simple verse has been interpreted a multitude of ways. For some who believe in the doctrine of perfection, they've made it declare that it's possible for some to abide in Christ and therefore not to sin. But if you will notice, it does not say that some abide in Christ, do not sin. But it says that no one, no one who abides in Christ sin. Therefore, this passage is not to be applied to a a few who attain perfection, but it pertains to all believers. And of every person abiding in Christ, it may be said that he does not sin. I also think we should read the Bible as we read just about any other book. We, We do not need to read into it with the intention of making something out of just every little word, but we should read it as we found it written, it's written that says, no one who abides in him sins. Now, I'm pretty sure that cannot mean no one does not sin at all. But I think it means that no one sins habitually or no one sins intentionally. As the Bible often calls a man righteous, but does that not mean that he's perfectly righteous? it calls a man a sinner but does it not imply that maybe that he's done some good deeds in his life whether we're called righteous or sinner it means the person's general character so when a person abides in Christ their general character is that of not being a sinner but rather being a saint they sin they know they do but it's not openly and willingly And in their own heart, in our own heart, we have much to confess. But but to our families, our friends, our neighbors, and coworkers, what do those people say about Christians? What do they say about children of God? They're likely to say, no one who abides in Christ sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. John finishes up this passage with, These words of wisdom to his fellow believers. He says, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin. Because he is born of God, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. John tells these believers, these fellow heirs to heaven, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled remember john wrote this letter because he was concerned he was greatly concerned about false teachers these false teachers who were considered antichrist they had been influencing these churches that were under john's care in john's time some of these false teachers were they were saying things that may give the impression of of good news they were saying things that might even have strong assurances But in reality, reality, it was the opposite effect. These false teachers were were teaching that a pre-existent Son of God, Jesus Christ, had not come in the flesh. They did not believe in the full union of this pre-existent Son of God with a fleshly human nature like our own. John says this about them in chapter 4, that, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming, and now is already in the world. Just as in John's day, now we flash 2,000-plus years forward. We look at today, just as in his time, we have false teachers. I did a, just a real quick search on Amazon and found over 15,000 books on spiritualism. Categories such as religion and spirituality, New Age spirituality, mysticism, atheism, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, religious studies, even worship and devotionals. And there was a lot more. So today, today, with this world of technology, we have it so much easier than what John's day did to be misled. There's so many people saying things that seem good, sound great. We can find experts on any subject and they tell us all sorts of wonderful news. It's hard not to believe. There's things like universalism, and that's the belief that all people will be saved, or that all ways lead to God and eternal life. Many who subscribe to this theology claim, for instance, that Christians and Muslims, well, we worship the same God. Or how about the prosperity gospel? The belief that God's primary concern is for believers to be healthy and wealthy. So if a Christian is sick, well, or if they're suffering or poor, well, it's because we have sin in our lives or we just don't have enough faith. Then there's the new age movement. And that's a, a belief system of Eastern influences that emphasizes universal tolerance. Doing what feels good. It contends that a man is divine and that we create our own reality. Or we can go the opposite direction to legalism. And it's the improper use of the law that's in Scripture to try for us to attain or to maintain our salvation by works. Hypergrace, well, that's an overreaction to legalism. It results in the abuse of God's grace. Believers find themselves drawn to this modern hypergrace movement because they are looking for freedom. You know, freedom not just from legalism, but from all of God's standards. There's also the emerging church. And that's a movement that claims to be Christian, but employs culturally sensitive methods to make the gospel more palatable. An emphasis on emotions over absolute truth. The notion that there is no hell, there's no judgment, and there's no need for forgiveness. The emerging church movement also glorifies honesty in confession, but Let's forget about repentance. So you see, it's easy. It's so easy to lean toward these false teaching, whether it's the prosperity gospel, universalism, the merging church. You know, let's just face it. When you heard some of those things, didn't that sound good? Wasn't that great? You know, it's easy to find out how can we go that direction and, and believe what they're teaching. But I'm reminded I'm reminded of the wisest men recorded. Solomon said in Proverbs, there's a way which seems right to a man, but in its end is the way of death. So as we brush past these false teachings, keep in mind that no other religion, no other thought makes the claim that their deity left his home, became flesh, lived, died, and rose from the grave so that we that we could abide with him. No other except Jesus Christ. So to make sure the ridge is not going down the wrong path, we have a group of men, elders, elders that have been called to oversee and shepherd this church. This group of men regularly pray. We regularly discuss, among other things, the teaching ministry of the ridge. We believe God gives wisdom through the polarity of leaders. So nothing is taught at the ridge that the elders have not approved. This includes what's being taught to our children, our students, and even adults in small groups are here on Sunday morning. Our teaching is deeply, deeply rooted in Scripture. Paul instructs Titus, Timothy, and us as well that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. But today, today even scripture is questioned. Behind all of this false teaching, behind all of it is the belief that scripture is fallible. And that truth, well, truth just changes with time. A 2014 Gallup poll. Said that only 22% of Americans believe the Bible is the actual Word of God and should be taken literally. 22%. 28% believe it's the Word of God, but there's a lot of interpretation for this book. Another 28% believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God, but don't take it literally. 18% believe that the Bible is an ancient book of legends, of history moral precepts that were written by one guy. So how can we trust this Bible, this book of Scripture? How do we know that this is God's Word? (laughs) You know, I could keep this short and cop out and dodge the question and just say, hey, it's just faith, faith alone. Or we could take weeks of study and deep do deep dives into the evidence that it might be out there. But to put it somewhere in between, we'll give a little longer answer than the short one. The historical and archaeological evidence, it, it just makes an amazing story. The Bible as we know it was solidified in 393 A.D. at the Sid of Hippo. The Old Testament was basically the Hebrew law and prophets that was quoted by Jesus and the Apostles. The coming together of the New Testament, well, that was a little bit more interesting in that there were literally dozens and dozens of letters circulating among the churches. This council settled on 27 books that we find in our New Testament today. And all of these books were written within 60 years of Jesus' death and resurrection. And most of them were written by men that actually had walked and talked and knew who Jesus was. All the other letters that were in circulation, all of them were written well over 100 years after Christ had died. And when we look at the words of antiquity, there's over 20,000 copies of the New Testament manuscripts in existence. And compare that with the Iliad, and that's the second most word from antiquity, it just has over 600 copies in existence, 20,000 versus 600. There's so much more evidence to help us know that this is the Word of God, but As I said, we just don't have time to cover it all. A good source, a good source that summarizes some 40 experts is Josh McDowell's More Than a Carpenter. In the Ridge, well, we use the New American Standard Bible because the authors, the researchers, and the translators went back to these works of antiquity to bring us English words in structure that we could understand. John concludes this section by saying that anyone who does write is good just like Christ himself and if anyone who keeps on sinning that is sinning habitually or sinning intentionally well that person belongs to the devil john said remember that the devil has sinned from the beginning but jesus the son of god came to destroy all that the devil had done and when we become a child of god we are transformed We become a child of God. We are new. Paul said that for if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. And behold, new things have come. When we become a child of God, we cannot keep on being sinful. Christ's life-giving power lives in you, lives in me. And it makes us his child. So we cannot keep on sinning. And it's obvious. It's obvious to anyone to tell God's children from the devil's children. Because those who belong to Christ do the right thing and and they love one another. So as we close, you have a choice. You have some decisions to make. You can leave as you came this morning. You can say that you had a great time this morning or maybe a terrible time or somewhere in between. And if you are a child of God, you can choose. You can choose to pray that God would convict you to do better, that daily you would be in his word, that he would convict you to pray more, And if you're married, well, if you're married, that you would pray with your spouse more. If you have a family, you would pray with them more. As a child of God, you can ask God to convict you to share his good news. To share his good news with someone so they too will know the gospel truth. It's a very, very sad fact that 95% of Christians... Never share the gospel. They never tell anybody else the good news. Let us not be one of them. And if you're here and you don't know or you just don't understand about this child of God thing, you also have those choices. You can leave and say you had a good time or a terrible time or somewhere in between. Or I give you another choice. Simply take a moment and write your name down on that card in the seat pocket in front of you and drop it in the offering plate in the back or in the front. And this afternoon, I'll give you a call, and we'll set up a time that we can just sit over coffee and have a chat about being a child of God. Sophie, will bow with me for prayer?